Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And our topic today is going to be resilience, resilience in tennis. Um, I think this is an important topic for all of us because in order to be a successful competitor, one has to be resilient in matches. Um, Problems are always occurring. There's always adversity. There are always challenges in a match. Uh, They rarely go smoothly. We probably all wish we could win 24 points in a row and and have that golden set, but um, I don't know about you, Josh. I've never come that close to that, and uh, even if you do it once, it isn't it isn't the norm. And so there are always things that are going to pop up in the way. And so we want to dive into the topic today and and talk about a specific program for training what's called mental fortitude. So resilience is kind of a part of that. Um, but mental fortitude is, is what we're going to talk about in terms of the actual training pieces of it. And throughout this discussion that Josh and I are going to have, we'll throw in some perhaps some different quotes or other perspectives that we think can, can help all of you develop resilience or mental fortitude in your, in your own training. Um, so just to begin, when we look at something like mental fortitude training, and we're basing this on uh, a very interesting article from David Fletcher and Mustafa Sarkar, um, who are uh, probably right now the preeminent researchers in resilience training in the world today. They're um, in the United Kingdom, and they have worked at uh, high levels of business as well as elite sport, working with uh, Team Great Britain or Team GB. Uh, And so they've written a lot of great stuff. and, And so we're really picking from some of that to bring to all of you so you can help develop your own mental fortitude. So a mental fortitude training program really consists of three things. And this is what Josh and I are going to dive into as we go through this this uh, this episode. So the three items are personal qualities, or I would maybe look at that, Josh, as almost like your personal character or personal uh, character skills. Second would be a facilitative environment. So being in an environment that uh, that allows for this. And third is something we've spoken about in previous episodes, but we'll get into more detail here, is the challenge mindset, right? So we've got personal qualities and characteristics, a facilitative environment, and a, and a challenge mindset. So perhaps, Josh, let's just stop here and just want to get your thoughts on when we think about resilience training or mental fortitude training, what do you think of these three areas? Because I know if I had thought about this just on my own, I don't know that I would have necessarily picked out those three things right right off the bat. Yeah, um, I agree that those those wouldn't have necessarily come to mind. Um, I think I, I do think though that all three fit in nicely with this this broader topic and are are needed necessary ingredients um, where the the challenge mindset is is needed because it's this overarching philosophy that hey regardless of what's going to happen, I'm going to embrace it as a challenge. And and we'll talk about this a little bit more, appraise it in an appropriate non-judgmental way of what the situation is. Um, So not, you know, whether it's a match and we know there's going to be ups and downs in a match or it's a season or even a career and um, understanding that, that there are going to be those ups and downs and there are going to be those challenges. There will be those roadblocks and, injuries and slumps along the way 
um, but being able to view those as opportunities and challenges rather than letting each of those pitfalls ultimately trip you up and derail you from that process of, you know, continuing to become a better and better tennis player and competitor. Um, so that, that, that first piece I think is probably the one that comes to mind most um, as it relates to resilience. Um, and then I think that the personality traits is, is certainly um, an interesting piece that I maybe wouldn't have initially thought of. I know um, we've, we've spoken about this on the podcast that, um, you know, it's, it, it's a, as, as coaches, as sports psychology professionals, um, it is to a certain extent a duty to help athletes on some of these traits. You know, it's not just about um, learning the, the mental skills, but can we talk about some of these other aspects like, um, you know, like motivation, like, um, you know, l- like sportsmanship at times, right? L- like some of these personality traits that, yes, it'll help you on the court, but will it'll also help you in, in other aspects of your life. Um, so uh, I, I, I would agree that um, this focus on personality traits um, and personal traits is, um, is, is very important as it relates to resilience, because these are things that you can draw on um, during those moments where really resilience is most needed. Um, and then lastly, that facilitative environment um, and, you know, intentionally crafting an environment, um, particularly in a team setting, um, whether that's at, let's say, a tennis academy or a high school team, college team, USTA team, um, where it's facilitative and it's um, supportive and um, it's the type of competition among peers that is encouraging and where players are helping each other. And it's not the type of thing where people are you know, putting each other down or competing in a way that is ultimately detrimental and also having coaches that intentionally structure that sort of environment. Um, so no, I, I would agree that, you know, those aren't necessarily those three, the three categories that would come to mind, but I, I, I also feel that they're necessary aspects to um, what makes up resilience and what um, particularly that last one, that facilitative environment that, you know, if, if, if you have a environment that's the opposite of that, that is, um, you know, where that's, that's maybe more isolating, that's, that's not, um, you know, not one where people can really rely on each other or feel supported, um, then when, when the, the trash hits the fan to try to, um, keep this, this podcast, um, not, not, uh, you know, not, not, not referred to as a adult content. Um, but when, when things go wrong, when, when it hits the fan, um, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult because you haven't been building those skills on a daily or weekly basis in your environment, within your team setting or your academy setting that are needed um, when, d- during those moments. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about um, why we need resilience in tennis, but one thought that came to mind as you were speaking was resilience isn't just reserved for sports. Yep. It's, it's needed for our everyday lives. There are always things that are going to be popping up. And so uh, I wanted to share a quote that um, actually Coach Bill Tim had shared with me. He, Coach Tim was on a previous episode of, the, of our podcast. And this is a quote from uh, Theodore Isaac Rubin, who was a um, 
famous American psychiatrist actually made psychotherapy popular or is one of the leaders of the movement of, of popularizing psychotherapy in the United States after World War II. Um, and so here's the quote. The problem is not that there are problems. The problem is expecting otherwise and thinking that having problems is a problem. So <laughs> there's a lot of use of the word problem in there. But um, I think when you read that or listen to it, helps you understand that problems, especially in something like tennis, are normal. Now, we were talking earlier, Josh, you know, perhaps it's about rephrasing or using a different word from problem. Uh, but even still, knowing that these things will happen, right? experiencing a problem or experiencing like, okay, I, I'm playing really well, but my opponent is handling my game and now has turned it against me. Okay. Yes, that's a problem, but it's something that you want to be able to deal with. And you don't want to sort of exacerbate that by thinking uh, that this is awful. No, it's normal. This is something that, that absolutely is within the realm of possibility in a match, as are many other things that we might be deeming as, as problems. And I think you said something earlier, Josh, that makes a lot of sense here is, can we look at some of these things in a more non-judgmental way? So perhaps, yeah, using the word problem, would be perhaps we would use different language when we work with somebody. Let's don't call them problems per se, because that just has a very negative t connotation. Maybe it is a challenge. Maybe it is an opportunity. Maybe it's something. Maybe we rephrase that. But I think the the whole purpose of the quote was to help understand that experiencing adversity and problems and issues is is completely normal. And if you think that otherwise, then, then that in itself is sort of a meta problem for you. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that quote really touches on that oftentimes the, the, the problem becomes the framing of the problem or the, yeah. the way that the problem is seen or the lens that it's looked at or even you know, one's perspective of, of that issue becomes more of a problem. Um, so no, I, I think that that's huge, and um, yeah, as it relates to that non-judgmental piece, I think we, Brian and I, were, were talking off air a little bit beforehand. We were talking about you know a situation where um, you know maybe a an eight UTR player is playing against a thirteen UTR player, um, and you know does that eight UTR player how does the how do they frame this type of situation? Do they frame it as something that um do, do, do they frame it in, in the, as an opportunity to play against a really strong player and to see how their game matches up against this really strong player or are they maybe not thinking through this process and are they gonna you know two or three points in when the other player starts you know likely hitting them off the court in certain ways is this going to lead to their frustration and um you know a, a downward spiral where they're unable to play their game and unable to perform well because because of these unrealistic expectations and because they haven't appraised the situation in a non-judgmental way where they're able to take themselves out of it and just see the situation for what it is and see maybe some opportunities um, or some some potential you know um, are they able to view it as an opportunity or a challenge? rather than maybe being threatened by the, the daunting task in front of them. Yeah, 
Right. I mean, you could go into it thing. Oh, I'm just going to get killed. Right. And more or less capitulate at that point, or you could say like your first appraisal there, like, hey, let me just try to play this great player and see what happens, and let me just try a few things, or maybe I can get a few points. Maybe I can try to get a game, and maybe narrow it down. Right. It is all on how how we appraise that situation and uh, how we'll how we'll perform. That one is obviously an extreme. Uh, doesn't happen that often, although it happens more often than you think. Um, in a lot of these UTR events, uh, those matchups end up occurring, right? So those high levels play that. So we've talked about the three high-level pieces of the program. So personality traits, facilitative environment, and challenge mindset. Let's get into, Josh, a little bit more on the on the personal traits and skills. Um because Fletcher and Sarkar break those into three more subcategories, which are the actual personality characteristics, um, the psychological skills that one could use. Um, and when those two things come together, when a person has the right sort of personality or character skills, and then they have the psychological skills where they want them to be, desirable outcomes can occur. So I, I want to just review for the listeners some of the different um, personality or personal character skills and traits, just so people get an idea of uh, what we may be working toward in terms of developing our own personal character, right? So items such as being competitive, uh, conscientious, having high standards, being optimistic and hopeful, uh, being proactive, motivated, composed from an emotional perspective, um, having a balance of task orientation, but also maybe ego and outcome orientation, um, and then being able to attribute any successes that you have as you know as a result of your own abilities uh, or any setbacks as related to something external or something more more transient. That's that's about attribution. Um, and so, you know, when I read those character traits or character skills, they resonate with me as that's that's something that we would want in any really strong tennis competitor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um I guess an angle that I would would add to this is the the positive psychology piece. Yeah. Where we want to be um Yes, as, as sports psychology practitioners and, and as coaches, we want to help to build some of these skills. And I think this fits in within, you know, designing a facilitative environment to help to build these skills. Um, but the other thing is, you know, each of us are endowed with, with certain, certain strengths, certain natural strengths. And, uh, you know, we want to be building on those strengths and drawing from those strengths um, I think we've, we've talked about, you know, positive psychology in terms of drawing from those strengths that we already have, but also we've talked about that uh, this observation that tennis players or people in general tend to spend a lot of time working on weaknesses and trying to improve weaknesses rather than building on strengths that already exist. Um, so if let's say one is um, highly highly optimistic and hopeful, right? High in that area. Is that something that can be built on 
or is that something that can um, you know you can utilize um, even more than you currently are um, rather than saying okay I'm all set in that category I'm gonna work on these other ones and bringing them the other ones up to you know a similar level um, so I, I would I would add both of those dimensions in terms of the positive psychology piece and also that that you know continuing to work our, on our strengths rather than just focusing on on weaknesses to to that that aspect of things yeah yeah no i agree i mean there's so much good stuff on a positive psychology that you know when it comes to working on one's character um that i think it's it's really helpful you know even just the the hope piece um yep. is a big part of positive psychology uh i, I like this list you know as a, if, if we were say looking at maybe defining or building the ultimate competitor many of these things would would be there um you know i think the competitive piece is interesting because um there are different definitions i feel on what competitive is right and um so I think that could probably be another episode at some point because I think sometimes competitive is, oh, I just always want to win or I always want to be better than somebody else. And I, you know, I think we could argue that that definition might be uh, not helpful all the time, right? There might be uh, alternative definitions of looking at competitive being more related to yourself and, and becoming the best you can be. But of course – Tennis is a sport about beating somebody else, isn't it? And so there has to be that. There, it, I think there's always – it always feels to me like there are some levels of contradiction to some of the things that we talk about in sports psychology. Like, all right, don't focus on winning, but, you know, the point is to win. Uh, and, and even here, having a balance of sort of a task and ego orientation no one can be really 100% task-oriented, right, focusing on the process only. There has to be a portion of you that wants to win, that has that as a, as a motivating factor, right? So I think it's a lot of balancing some of these in some ways like polar opposites or seemingly contradictory things that helps us become that that great competitor that we, we want to be. And and perhaps part of that also is understanding back to our thing about problems is that problems are going to occur, right? It's not going to be um, just so, you know, going smoothly all the time. Um, and so by having a balanced, say, personality or balanced set of character skills, you can deal with that adversity better, right? Which is what is, what is being stated here. Um so the next piece of the, the the personality piece is the psychological skills that are important to mental fortitude training, right? So w- when we combine these skills with some of the character skills, this is when we can a- uh, attain more desirable outcomes. And so some of the th- stuff from the research was uh, in terms of psychological skills, self-awareness, uh, being able to control your attention, control your thoughts and the images that go through your mind, regulating your arousal, which really means regulating your intensity or anxiety or stress, that ability, the ability to set goals. Um, And I think when we're talking about in competition, it's probably more process type of things than anything. Um, And then lastly, 
this is really the whole thing, I think, is the ability to plan for unexpected events, right? The ability to plan for problems. Yeah, those are all, I think within, within these, I mean, these, these might be referred to as, as psychological skills or mental, you know, mental skills. Um, But yeah, I I think uh, that that last piece definitely encompasses everything um, that, that, that we're talking about right here. Um, I, I would also go, go to that first piece that you talked about the awareness piece. And I think, um, you know, what, with, with each of these categories, the awareness piece fits in, whether it's attention and notice, you know, being aware of where your attention is at that, at that moment, or, you know, goal setting and that awareness of, um, you know, where does this goal actually fit into where I'm at um, or, or along that process? Okay. Being aware of, you know, how far along um, during in the goal setting process, are you, does this, do the goals need to be adjusted uh, but I actually wanted to go back to um, one of the personality characteristics you were talking about, where you were talking about being competitive and how that can be sort of a double-edged sword in a certain way. And it reminded me of our, our conversation with Will Beauregard, um, one of our um, earlier interviews. And uh, he talked a lot about, um, from his perspective, what, you know, what, what is this difference between being really competitive and being a great competitor? And, uh, you know, really broke it down into, okay, what are those things that are within my control? Am I doing everything within my control to give myself the best possible chance to win? Where, okay, that's great that you're competitive and that you really want to win and you really want to beat that person on the other side of the net. And that's awesome. But are you really being the best possible competitor you can be? Are you really preparing in a way that you need to? Are you really, when you're out on court, are you going through the routines and processes that you've put in place that are going to give you that best possible chance? So, um, no, I, I agree, Brian, with what you're saying about how a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these characteristics can be, can be double-edged or can, you know, the, even the optimistic and hopeful piece, right. Yeah. Which is, is a huge piece of positive psychology. If you're optimistic and hopeful going into an event and it doesn't go well, does that does that detract from um, d- does that lessen the chances of you being optimistic going into that next event or maybe if you had gone in with um, you know less being less hopeful or less optimistic or less um, you know feeling like you were gonna really perform at your best in this event um, you know w- would that have, have impacted things differently. So I, I, I agree that, that, you know, with many of these character characteristics and personality traits that, um, you know, there, there is sort of a double-edged sword on some of these, but um, I, I fully agree that by building these skills, we can help to set athletes up for, um, to perform better. But um, as it relates to this uh, specific conversation, to be resilient and to be able to handle the ups and downs of a tennis match, but ultimately, you know, of, of life. And that, you know, we, we talk about how tennis can be sort of a, an analogy for, for life. And, you know, there's um, over the course of a match, there's, it's inevitable that there are going to be, there is going to be turmoil. There are going to be the ups and downs. And um, in my view, by, 
by putting yourselves in these situations, you, you learn from them and you're able to handle them better, you know, when, in other, in other scenarios. Um, and I, I think it's the same thing here by training these skills um, off the court oftentimes, but also potentially on court, um, you set yourself up for that best possible chance to handle the situation well when it, when it actually arises. Yeah, I wanted to touch on two things that you said, Josh. Run the way you were talking about competitiveness and and about uh, Will Beauregard and our interview with him. It, it that did come flooding back there, and it made me think that with his definition, like being competitive could actually be a distraction from being a great competitor. Right? That that over you know emphasis on winning can actually harm your ability to compete because you're probably getting frustrated or you know maybe even being too happy right um and that leads me to talking wanted to talk a little bit more about the composed piece um i kind of summarized that a little bit from the research really what is there and, and you may like this, Josh, because it kind of goes back to the mindfulness stuff, but is this sense of equanimity, which for those who are not familiar with the term is really about um, being able to be calm regardless of what's going on around you, right? There can be chaos or whatever, but you are constantly even keeled and able to handle things. It's almost like being at the in the eye of the storm. Can you be that calm in the middle of the storm? And that is, I think, a very desirable state for one to be in, in in a tennis match. Now, you get, I think, some conflicting coaching with respect to celebrating points, um, that people should always celebrate points when they win or, or, or whatever. Um, and I think sometimes the problem with that, and we've spoken on this issue, I think, in the past, is that you're being judgmental. You're judging the point. Yes, I want it. Awesome. To a certain degree, I think there is some value to that. Um, I read something earlier this week how having sort of just these mini wins can actually promote the production of testosterone, which is helpful. But it's when we go too far and put too much emphasis on the winning of points versus, hey, I just played a good point, um, that it can be a distraction. And, you know, there are plenty of players, certainly at the pro level, who have that calm, composed state for the majority of a match. They may reserve a fist pump or a come on for some big moments. But they're not doing it at 15 love one all in the first set. Um, and I think that that's somewhat of the, the misconception here. So when we're talking about being able to be resilient, you do not want to have emotional swings where you're going up and down and up and down. I think that that, is, that goes against what we're trying to do here because then you're being very judgmental the whole time. Can we bring more equanimity to the situation to be more composed and calm and take the good, you know, in a in a in a kind of even keeled way? And same with the bad. And right there, I'm even making judgments about good and bad. Um, can we just take everything with a certain level of, of being composed and even keeled? 
So I think that that's uh, an important aspect and something for players to think about because we both know there's lots of celebrating that goes on out there. Um, it's probably especially in the more younger age groups. Yeah, you may see it a little bit more in the senior level, but I think you see more of it at the, at the younger level. Um, so yeah, good stuff, Josh. I think on on on, on those. Any 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 other thoughts on on those? Um, not really. No, I, I agree. I mean, I I feel like broadly, and there there might maybe some exceptions here, but um, when a player has these elaborate celebrations, there's going to be the other side too yeah, most of the time. Um, so you know, you you see somebody like a like a like a Roger Federer who you know is, is known for throughout his career being pretty even keel, um, and I think that benefits him for for some of those um lower moments where maybe he doesn't sink quite as low because um you know he has that perspective that things go up things go down um this is the way things things go rather than sort of riding that wave like a roller coaster and when things go up you're you're up when you know when you're winning you're a winner and when you're losing you're a loser right sort of that that sort of attitude that Brian Barker in, in episode two was was warning against, right? This this riding that those emotions too much and identifying a little bit too much with some of these emotions. Um, so I, I think rather than doing that, having the perspective and understanding that you've played plenty of matches before that that you've won, and you've played plenty of matches be- in the past that you've lost. You know, this is another result. This is another checkpoint on that long timeline. And there's going to be more matches in the future that you'll win and lose. And sort of keeping that perspective, I think, is important to um, to to be more resilient during those those bad moments or those lower moments, because you understand that hey, life goes on, and you know I've been through it in the past. I'll go through it again in the future. And that you know, I just because I lost this match. That doesn't make me a loser. This is just a result. So, yeah. And I think if we look throughout history, there have been plenty of great players who were calm throughout matches. And I'm probably dating myself here, but Bjorn Borg, Chris Everett, Tracy Austin, Pete Sampras, uh, all great, great players, Grand Slam winners, and all of them. I mean, they rarely celebrated unless until the match was over. Those four. Um, I mean, Sampras maybe the occasional fist pump, right? But you never got that from a Borg, or you know, there. You know, I guess it was maybe before that became somewhat of a of a thing to do. Um, so, just something for people to think about in terms of how you regulate that, because we are all a little bit different. We all need different levels of intensity. Um, it just being on guard about not going too high and too low, right? Keeping it within a, perhaps a range that can allow you to can still make good decisions and, um, continue to move forward. So the next, um, big, uh, part of this mental fortitude training we want to talk about is, is that facilitative environment. You've been talking, you've, you've mentioned a couple things here, Josh, already about, um, characteristics of that, the necessity of, of that. And I think this is really some good stuff for coaches to be thinking about. Now, with 
saying that, it could also be good for a player perhaps who is looking for a new place to play, uh, whether that be a new tennis academy to go to, a new club to join, or maybe they're looking at college tennis. And these can be some good characteristics to be mindful of when you're evaluating a new program for you. But like I said, this also could be something for the coach who wants to build more resilience into his or her team. These characteristics are are important. So I'm just going to list these off and then, Josh, I'll let you talk about a few of these that perhaps um, you've experienced personally or or, or whatever, right? So um, supportive challenge towards a goal be one characteristic. People thrive in a challenging but supportive environment. Individuals have input into and take ownership of goals. So that's like a autonomy supportive environment. So if we're talking about things like self-determination theory with respect to motivation, we want to have people have autonomy. Individuals seek out challenges to develop. Individuals crave constructive feedback in, in a facilitative environment. There are good relationships between performers, leaders, and coaches. Uh, facilitative environment is psychologically safe, so people can take sensible risks there. There's a healthy sense of competition, so it's not so much about beating each other, more about using competition to be better. Everyone supports one another. People are able to learn from their mistakes and failures. Success is recognized and celebrated. And then there's a sense of we're in this together. And I think um, that's important, not only from a team perspective, but even at an academy perspective, because if you're training at an academy as an individual player, you have to buy into the perspective that, yeah, I may play you on the weekend, but when I'm hitting with you today, we're making each other better, right? We're in this together. We're both part of this academy experience. So when you hear that list, Josh, um, what are some thoughts that come to mind and, and perhaps even environments that you've been in that have been like this or maybe environments that weren't? Yeah, I, I would say um, success being recognized and celebrated is a big one. Um, and, you know, being in an environment where people are cheering for each other on the same team, um, you know, somebody, let's say the team loses but there's, um, you know, there's there's six singles matches and three doubles matches, and within those nine matches, there are a couple of great matches. And maybe, you know, on the bus ride home from, from the match or the band ride home, whatever it is, it's it's not just everybody's you know moping around, but people are patting each other on the back and and celebrating those successes, um, even if you know even if the team result didn't go the way you wanted it to. So that that I think is a big one. Um, and that's that's something that I've I, I have fortunately experienced on on various teams that I've been a part of, um, but yeah, I, I would also say you know the the good relationship between performers and leaders or coaches. Um, so that would you know would be um, whether high school, college, USTA, different environments uh, between maybe the captains of the team um, or the coaches of the team and the, the players themselves, and having. Um, you know, good, healthy relationships there. Um, yeah, I think that that's definitely a big one. Um, yeah, I, I think I've I've been been fortunate to have been a part of and worked in in some some definitely facilitative environments that that have 
met a lot of these qualities, met most of these qualities. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think I think this list from from the research really encompasses um, the the different aspects that are needed to form resilience. Because if if people if we go back to the supportive piece, if people know that they're supportive, so supported, and they know that they can take risks when things don't go your way, it's not as unexpected. It's not as much of a disaster. You know that people that your buddies on the team are there for you. You know that your coach has your back or your captain or whatever it may be. So um, by you know, and and you know for for the coaches out there listening or the parents out there listening, yeah, think about these sorts of things when you're, um, you know, what what sort of environment you're crafting. And um, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're already, you know, you already have a leg up on in, in certain ways. But trying to, you know, be intentional about creating this sort of environment, let's say within a tennis academy where, um, you know, at the end of a match, players are um, not just upset at each other over line calls or things like that, but somebody hits a winner during the match and, you know, you're encouraging one player to compliment the other player on their shot. Um, Or maybe, yes, we all train hard against each other. Um, but then we have a team match where we play against some other teams and we're all in this together and we're all cheering each other on. So I think there's a lot of great stuff within this research uh, that, that we're discussing right now that can be utilized and can be, you know, a lot of practical information here that can be utilized in an academy setting, a college setting, as you mentioned, Brian, high school, USTA team. Um, so I, I, I think there's there's a lot of great stuff here. Yeah, it's just building that environment that allows people to um, be able to take some risk, right? Risk of failing and knowing that um, people, like you said, Josh, have their back. And when you're on a team, I don't think team players go out and intentionally try to blow it. Like, they don't try to lose. They're... Their intentions are they want to to do well. Uh, and so if, if somebody's got the right intention, playing with good attitude, playing with good effort, there's no reason for teammates to get upset that uh, a person lost. It, that happens. Um, one of the challenges I think I've noticed with college teams is that people are often named captains but they don't really get any training on how to be a good captain or how to be a good leader. Uh, and so sometimes people will default, as they often do in business as well, to sort of more of a command and control or an autocratic style. And so you know, for those coaches who may be listening, we definitely recommend that if you're going to have captains on your team, that you provide some sort of leadership training to them so that um, these other aspects of the environment can um, can also can be be attained because uh, uh, even just a captain on your team who's acting in an autocratic way could really counter much of what we see in this research and I've seen that you know unfortunately in, in, in some different teams that how people lead can be sometimes cruel and critical and I'm a senior, you're not a senior and, and, and so forth. So it's just something to watch out for. 
in some of those environments. But I think this is really very important for uh, coaches, especially as they're trying to develop more resilient programs. Can you embrace having this environment? Because there are maybe some coaches who are somewhat command and control and, and, and a little bit more autocratic and this is the way I do it and so forth. And they may not be as comfortable with giving some autonomy to the team. But tons of research on, on motivational climate around teams and, and organizations and, and how having uh, more autonomy with the players or members of a team is, is, is hugely beneficial to what's going on there. So I think that's really good, um, good, good information for coaches and, and for players. So let's jump to the last one, Josh, because I think this is the one that we've spoken a lot about, but there might be some more stuff in here that we haven't covered per se in the past, right? And that's the idea of um, the, the challenge mindset. And I know we've shared this quote in the past. Um, it comes from uh, some Toltec philosophy and is quote by a guy named Carlos Castaneda. And I'll, I'll change it to be a little bit more inclusive uh, than I think the actual quote is. But um, so the quote is, says, the difference between an ordinary person and a warrior is that a warrior takes everything as a challenge and an ordinary person takes everything as a blessing or a curse. And that really gets down to what we want to talk about here is that the warrior, and in this case, the warrior is not necessarily just somebody who fights, you know, in battle, but it's really a warrior, somebody who is fighting for his or her own personal freedom, right? To kind of free themselves of conventional wisdom and such things, right? So somebody who is sort of woken up, perhaps, even from a Buddhist perspective. And they understand that that warrior person understands that, like we said earlier, problems are normal. And instead, if I want to succeed and and and, and become the best that I can become, I need to embrace these things. I need to, because they are going to make me better. Challenges make us better. Um, if we were all to train with players we could always beat, we would never become great players because we're never truly being challenged. And so I think that's the, the bit about challenge that sometimes we miss is in order to be great, you need to be challenged. In order to be great, you need to get uncomfortable. And that's what that quote's about and, and helping you understand that. So when we talk about developing a challenge mindset, it's helping people reappraise how they're looking at a particular event, um, which we would call a stressor, right? There might be something stressing you out. You might be feeling threatened like, oh, this person's UTR is lower than mine. I can't lose this match. If I lose this match, then my UTR is going to go down and no college is going to recruit me and my life is over and I should just quit tennis and I don't want to play this match. That is one way a person could appraise that, that type of thing. And I think, Josh, it's this is where the work that you and I do really comes in and, 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 and helps people through that process. So I'm curious, when you, when you work with somebody and they're, they've got maybe an upcoming event, and they're not looking at it as a challenge. They're, they're seeing sort of the, the threat aspects of this. What, what, what type of process do you like to go through to help them um, reframe things? 
Yeah, um, I, I would I would start. I, I generally would start with the identity piece and thinking of okay, who who are you and who do you want to be? And okay, does that person that you want to be how how do they handle these types of situations? Right, you want to be a tough you know mentally tough tennis player um, that's able to handle anything. Yet when faced against a player whose UTR is lower, you 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 don't want to back away from that that type of challenge, right? Or that type of um, you don't want to. If you see that as a threat, then you know then that's a weakness of yours that you're not um, able to handle those types of situations, right? If you are telling me that you're not able to capable of playing certain types of players, sometimes. It's a counterpuncher, or they'll they'll refer to somebody as a pusher, or a, a servant volley player, or whatever it is. Then that that says something about um, you know where you're at in terms of your mental toughness. Um, but I, I would say in general, um, yeah, discussing some of these perspectives and understanding that hey, I, I often will bring things back to controlling the controllables. That a lot of things are outside of our control. Who we play in a tournament is unfortunately out of our control. But what is within our control is how we handle that situation. And what is our mindset going into it? How do we prepare for this match? Are we viewing it in the right way as an opportunity um, to get a little bit better, right? If the top players in the world um, in tennis and in any sport are not just the top players because they, they are able to beat their peers, of the same level, but they're able to consistently, almost every time, beat people who are a level below. So that is a skill that oftentimes, frankly, can be tough. Um, I, I think we all know, players, coaches, etc., how common it is, unfortunately, to sink to the level of our opponents if, when, when playing against a weaker player. So viewing that sort of match as a challenge, as an opportunity to keep our level up, and maybe it's a certain aspect of our game, you know, coming into net more, um, adding more spin to our shots, whatever it is. Hey, let's view this as an opportunity to work on some of those things rather than as a threat to, um, you know, what if I, what if this match is really competitive and my UTR drops? You know, I think once you start to get into the what ifs, you're no longer present. You're no longer thinking about what's important now. You're thinking about the future and you're not staying, you know, present with really with ultimately what's going to give you the best possible chance. So going back to, you know, controlling the controllables and thinking about doing all of those little things right in terms of the preparation, in terms of your mindset when you're out there, in terms of learning from each time you're out there every time you compete or practice and learning from these experiences. Um, but yeah, I would start with that identity piece and then talk a little bit, you know, about that controlling the controllable piece. And then, you know, thinking about our perspective going into, into the match or playing, facing this player and understanding that in order to be a great player, in order to be a little bit better of a player that, you know, playing, beating this sort of person or performing well against, a certain type of person fits in into that puzzle is a necessary piece of becoming that player that you want to be. I like that. I, I the piece I, I really like is the um, you're focusing more on that process, right? You said so something like 
all right, maybe I'll come into net more or I'll, I'll do these things. I like to think of those as like you're giving yourself challenge process goals. In the other instance, when we're thinking of this as a threat, we're avoiding the whole situation. We don't, we're really just coming up with a lot of don'ts. Don't lose. Don't do this. Don't do that. When we set challenging process goals and we really focus on those things, it can often help us to focus better. And let's say it's in that situation where we're playing the player who's not quite as good. We're not worried about that anymore. We're just trying to focus on this challenging process goal, right? Maybe it's like, all right, I told you that I want you to serve and volley at least once a game when you're serving or get to the net as much as you can or something, something that you can control. Um, then that ends up becoming more of the focus and then more of the discussion. And you probably end up winning the match more easily than maybe you even would have normally, that type of thing. One of the things that I like to do is, is really start addressing some of the specific things that a person may say, you know, as they're doing that appraisal. And one of my favorite um, activities here is from a, a theory called rational emotive behavior therapy, which is really looking at the ways that people think can often be irrational. You know, they may be awfulizing or catastrophizing. They may be overgeneralizing or being all or nothing type of thinking. And, and we see these patterns normally come out when we're having stress appraisal. Um, and so by going through a process of helping a player or an athlete cognitively reframe what they're doing by um, having them first understand you know, what triggers these thoughts, maybe just being entering a tournament may be the trigger. And that's when all these things come out. Then having them write down all of their thoughts. And there may be anywhere from, you know, a couple things to maybe four or five or six different things. And then once we've got those out, we can start to look at the consequences of that type of thinking. How does that make you feel? What do you, what, what does this make you focus on? What does it do to your confidence when you're thinking this way? What does it do to your motivation when you're thinking this way? It's just a good way to really break down what are you know what are the real consequences of thinking that way, and and then really how do you perform when you have these types of thoughts? Then asking the player to look at some of the thoughts that they they wrote down and tell me why they're not true, like or give me the evidence for why that is true. Like you said, you suck. All right, what's the evidence for that? Because I think actually the evidence says that you don't suck. Um, things like that. And you get them to start to talk about, um, and this is actually something, you know, we as professionals can kind of push them at, like throw their own self-talk back in their face and make them defend it and, or, or counter it. And so that can become a, a, a useful exercise as well. And once we've gone through that, we want to then say, okay, we're in this situation. Of course you want to win and succeed. So if that's really what you want, what do you need to what are some things you need to say here? Maybe they're motivational, maybe they're instructional. Um, but can we come up with something a little bit more rational to replace that that piece? And through working this challenge mindset, and I think this is useful when we're playing an event that maybe we're a little bit leery of, if you write this out, this can then become your self-talk plan from now until the event. You can be reading this. You can be visualizing maybe yourself being like you said, Josh, that identity 
of that player you want to be. And I think there's a way to help you kind of get there, this type of exercise. And, and as you're visualizing and reading it, then this can be start to become more your default mode of thinking about how you're going to play this tournament. By the time that that event comes up, you're probably talking about it in more of a challenge mindset way than you would be initially. Um, so I found that to be really helpful in working with athletes and even just my own sort of you know playing matches and taking that on. I think the other thing that we want to make sure that we're working with players on with this is um, making sure they're taking stock of what their own resources and skills are in terms of ability to be in this situation, right? We mentioned the sort of the eight UTR versus the 13 UTR. There's, there's a gap there of skills and resources. So we've got to be realistic about that. That may not be able to handle that match, right? So perhaps winning isn't the thing we're going to go for. Maybe we're going to chunk it down to something, something smaller than that. So any, any thoughts on, on, uh, or other thoughts on the challenge mindset? No, I think you, I think you really covered, covered a lot there. Um, I, I liked, I liked, um, the suggestion to, to write things down in terms of really thinking through, okay, what, what am I afraid of here? You know, what, what could go wrong in this situation? Is it me losing this match? Is it my UTR dropping? Is it, embarrassing myself is it letting down my parents or my coach or you know what what is it and sometimes when oftentimes when you when you do that and you go through that process you you look back at it and you know you're it it helps you to rationalize it helps you to put put things into perspective a little bit so um no i I think that you know view understanding that you can view any sort of situation through this lens you know is it a is it a challenge or is it an opportunity um, compared to a threat, right? Are we, are we viewing things in the right way, but also appraising ourselves and our own abilities in the right way and trying to match up whenever possible our abilities with that challenge? And maybe it's, you know, maybe we're on the other side of it. Maybe we're the 13 UTR um, against the eight. And how can we, you know, create an appropriate challenge to give ourselves the best possible chance to perform. We've talked about um, to give ourselves the best possible chance to, um, to be in a flow, to, to, to be in flow that you have the, our abilities and the challenges need to be aligned. So how can we best try to do that um, if we're on the other side of things and, you know, to avoid falling, you know, dropping to the level of our competition how can we set up challenges and um, you know view view the match in a way where you know we have a challenge that we have to do? Maybe it's serving and volleying. Maybe it's um, you know playing in a style that's contrary to how we normally play. But we understand that this is going to help us to um, you know in a, in a future match in a future situation. Yeah, by setting a challenging goal or looking at it as a challenge, you're pushing yourself to be better. And uh, like you said, that may help you in a further further match to, to do that in that, that situation, right? Everything so, is practiced. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think you know you brought up the idea of introducing various perspectives as part of the the challenge mindset piece. I think that's spot on um, because that can also when you introduce some of those perspectives and you do that reframing, it gives. <laughs> 
the player a little bit more ammunition about how to counter their own self-talk in that. So I think that's a really key piece is, you know, we're helping these players develop perspectives or a personal philosophy that gets them to look at the world a little bit differently and allows them to make better decisions uh, about how to handle on how to handle things, right? So just to summarize and recap, we've been talking today in our episode about mental fortitude training, um, and we went through the three areas to really help develop resilience that help to make someone or give someone mental fortitude, and that's developing uh, your personal qualities or character skills, um, understanding the right facilitative environment that can bring that stuff out, and then finally working on the, the challenge mindset. Um, and if we can do that, then we can truly build uh, resilience, you know, which is really about abilities to use your personal qualities to, to resist and, and withstand pressure uh, of performance. So with that, that's our show for today. Uh, thank you all for listening. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag TennisIQ. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we will talk to you soon in our next episode.